This is Dana Thomas, and you're listening to The Green Dream, a podcast about how to green up your life. Climate change is bearing down on us like a mighty hurricane, and it's scary as hell, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dana Thomas, a leading voice in the sustainable fashion movement. On The Green Dream, I welcome global experts, creators, and change makers from politics, business, and the arts for dynamic conversations on how you can green up your life. The Green Dream is the podcast of hope. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, and at select stores. This episode is also sponsored by Stripe and Stare, the world's comfiest sustainable lingerie, loungewear, and sleepwear. Stripe and Stare products are made from tensile modal, tree-based, cloud-soft, and biodegradable. Stripe and Stare is on a mission to revolutionize your underwear drawer and change the world one knicker at a time. To discover Stripe and Stare and the silky softness of tensile, shop on its website, stripeandstare.com with a 20% discount for Green Dream listeners. At checkout, enter this exclusive code, DREAM20. That's D-R-E-A-M-2-0. Stripe and Stare is also available at major retailers, including Selfridges and Shopbop. Camille Chaillet is Echo Fashion's chicest influencer. The sustainability editor for British Elle and a major presence on social media, Camille shares sharp, insightful advice and observations on sustainable living. Anglo by birth, she grew up in Paris where her parents are intellectuals and academics. She earned her law degree in Paris and moved to London to work for a hedge fund. But her love for creative arts and style was too strong. And in 2010, she quit finance to pursue a career in fashion. She launched a blog called Camille Over the Rainbow, which beautifully blended her French savoir-faire and her British forthrightness. And she evolved into a leading style influencer with a devoted following. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Camille pivoted to the sustainable side of fashion, and she is now one of the leading voices in the movement. She tells us about her switch to conscious consumerism and how she spreads the word to a wider audience. Also today, Hannah Elliott, luxury car rider for Bloomberg Pursuits, returns to the Green Dream with her madcap review of the new McLaren hybrid, Atura. As some of you know, I'm a car girl, having spent childhood weekends working on engines with my dad and watching him and his friends race at Summit Point in West Virginia. So I knew all about McLaren when I met its star Formula One driver, James Hunt, in London in 1985. And yes, dear listeners, James Hunt was as tall, beautiful, and hot as Chris Hemsworth portrays him in the Ron Howard movie, Rush. So I was thrilled to hear that McLaren had moved into the world of EVs. If only mega expensive supercars for the moment, Hannah's review is hilarious. But first, Camille Chaillet and a look at fashion through a green lens. Camille Chaillet, welcome to The Green Dream. I think it's safe to say that you are the leading fashion influencer in the sustainability realm. You appear on social media, on talk shows, in magazines, 
all talking about how it's possible to be fashionable and eco-conscious. Can you tell us how? Yeah, you buy less. It's the only way. <laughs> buy less of everything, right? Everything. There's just no other way. It's funny because I was asked once to go and talk to someone in sustainability and they'd sent me a list of suggested questions that I should ask. And one of them was like, how can I be more eco-conscious so that I can help my followers be the same? And I was like, no, I'm not going to ask that because everybody knows what it is. It's you buy less. There's no other way. Or like you don't buy anything at all. <laughs> That's the only other way. It really was during the pandemic that I had that real mind switch because we were at home for so long and our clothes were just not being used. And I was just looking at everything I had and I was like, what is all of this? It's not like I've not known about sustainability my whole life. My mum is head of the environmental department at Jussieu. So it's something that's always been in my life. Jussieu being a university in Paris. In Paris. Yeah. yeah, it's a science university. She teaches the doctors and all the environmental students English, which is very important, obviously, because English is what they're going to be using day to day. So she has a really important role. And I think she gets them really excited about languages. And she's always completely passionate about this, but also an optimist and someone who really believes that you can really make a difference if you do it properly. She was really cross with me when I went into fashion. It was like I was crossing into the dark side, you know, and she was like, how <laughs> dare you? And I was like, well, how else are we going to make a change if you're just going to watch from afar? That pandemic stretch. So there was, first of all, the fact that I wasn't using any of my clothes. And it was also like I spent so much more time in my own neighborhood. And my own neighborhood is Portobello Road. On Portobello Road, it's all the vintage dealers. It's a flea market. It's a flea market. And they've got from the most expensive to the cheapest and the best vintage fashion clothing that you can find probably in the UK. And it's a really buzzing, lovely, like everyone is like chats to each other. And I just became friends with all the dealers because I was like talk talking to them about like how hard it was to start back up again. I just realized that I had to do my job differently if I was going to make a difference. And I know that people say it's not possible to be an influencer and to have a fashion eco-conscience. And I disagree because I think we all shop, we all wear clothes, we all are allowed to be passionate about things that are not important in the sense of clothes are not essential, but if you do think about how they made us feel during the pandemic, they are important. Like when I was putting on a cute outfit and some lipstick in the evening, have dinner with my boyfriend, I felt better. If I was staying in my pajamas all day, I felt like shit. You do realize that actually putting yourself together is an important part of your day. It's a ritualistic, it's self-expression, it's an act of kindness to yourself. It's all these things. I think it's important to not like divorce yourself from allowing yourself to like wearing nice things and buying nice things and all of that, which I think you can do in a way that's mindful. I just had a really big think about how I was interacting with my followers and I realized that the thing that I got asked the most, obviously, when I post anything is, where did you get it from? Right. Okay, so this is the thing. Like, people come on my page and, like, they see what I'm wearing and they want it. So how can I make sure that when they come on my page, I'm not sending them off to buy something? Well, I'm just going to buy things that are not available. So if you're going to come on my page and you're going to see something you like, if you want it, you're going to have to go and look for it, which is part of what fashion used to be. You know, you used to have to hunt and dig Absolutely. and it took time. You had to find something that fit. Now it's like you see something on Instagram, you click, you buy, like you don't even remember you've done it because you don't even have to put your car details in. And it's already on your front doorstep the next morning. You've probably forgotten about it. You've not even worn it. Like, I think that our relationship with how we buy things now, and it's kind of the same in the supermarket, you know, there's just too much choice, too much. Too accessible, too much choice. Yeah, too much choice. It's not necessary. I still think that the whole point of like 
fashion. It's also the hunt, the chase, you know, the like figuring out who you are, what suits you, what you love, what makes you feel good when you wear it. We're so different. We all have such different personalities. You work with Elle magazine in the UK. Yeah. How do you find the balance or how do you create what you're going to express through Elle magazine with this ethos? I mean, the magazine is about buying stuff. So how do you convey to them to not buy stuff, but then also keep in the politic of the magazine? For me, when I'm writing for Elle, what's more important to me is telling a story and explaining why. Kenya asked me to write about naked dresses recently because I wore a naked dress on my wedding. You wore a naked dress on your wedding. Let's explain to your listeners what a naked dress is. I mean, it's pretty obvious, but still explain. It's a dress, I think, where you can see certain parts of your body because it's see-through, because it's got panels, because it's been cut out, and it's taken off in a big, big way. And I wore, I wore a naked dress on my wedding day, which was met with a lot of shock and vitriol online to the point where I'd written an op-ed about it. But When she did ask me to write about it, I I really thought it through because I was like, what is the point of this article? Is it to go out and make people buy naked dresses or is it to make you have a real conversation about what clothes can mean? Right. And that's what I decided to do. And I think ultimately, I'm not here to tell people what to do. I don't think you need to wear a naked dress to be cool. I just don't. I think our relationship with fashion is so personal. But I do think that reading about why someone else has found it empowering or like, why, say, Rihanna has managed to reinvent maternity dressing. She really has. She's just like revolutionized how we feel about a woman when she's pregnant, allowing her to be sexy, allowing her to like be the same woman as she is when she's not pregnant, which is so rare. I remember when Princess Diana showed up pregnant in the Bahamas or in the Caribbean somewhere in a bikini, and it was like the world stopped. Dead. Stopped. <laughs> like, yeah. What, what, what? A woman pregnant? A royal pregnant in a bikini? It just goes to show that like these conversations matter. Yeah. The thing about the naked dress on my wedding is that I didn't realize what I was doing when I was doing it. I didn't do it to shock. I didn't do it to be controversial. I didn't even think until the morning I was getting into the dress where I suddenly was like, shit, I am naked. Like, And I really, like, suddenly I, I realized what I was about to go and do. But before that, I just didn't really register what that meant. When I saw what happened online, I mean, I work in fashion, so I'm not used to people not being open-minded in the sense that like in fashion, everybody wears like a lot of nonsense. Like clothes are so silly. We love silly clothes. Like we love like things that don't make sense. Yeah. And even things that are like a bit bonkers, you know, like that's the point of it. It's fun. It's not necessarily meant to be like chic or whatever. And when people started calling me a whore, that I was a disgrace to my family. I was like, how can people talk to each other like this? What is it about clothes? What is it about women's bodies and the way people feel possessive over them? They feel that they can come and scream at you online and hurl names at you because they don't agree with what you're wearing. And it's because clothes are really actually quite significant. They, They have meaning. They always have. And in every part of the world, like what people wear is significant. It really is. And it's part of our identity and it's part of our story. That's why it's important to have these conversations. And that's what I try and inject into my work with Elle. That's fantastic. Now you've just started a partnership with Stripe and Stare, a sustainable lingerie company out of the UK. They use Tensile, which is a cellulose-based fabric made from tree pulp. I actually visited the Tensile plant in Lensing, Austria last year and saw how they make this fabric. And it was there that I met the women who founded and run Stripe and Stare. Tell us about that company and what you're doing with them. Actually, it's funny because they sent me knickers as a gift 
for my wedding with my name and Francois's name and Rye, which I loved. And I'd never really heard of them. And I started wearing them and I just, they're so comfortable. It's like when- Did we see the name through the naked dress? No, no, no. I didn't wear them. I didn't wear them on the actual wedding day. I wore them throughout (laughs) the week. It's funny because I started mentioning them to my friends and I realized everybody knew about them. You know, you mentioned them like at a fashion dinner, everyone's like, oh yeah, those are my favorite knickers. Or you mentioned them like, you know, with your journalist friends and they're all like obsessed with it. But yet they're not big on Instagram. Like it's just this word of mouth thing that girls, you know, when they find something that's comfortable, they all tell each other. I think she must have reached out to me. I don't remember if it was me or her, but we were chatting and she suggested doing... She being... Katie, who's the founder, sorry. And who is incredible. It's a female founded business. They're really, really clever. And she was like, let's do a capsule together. It's never happened to me in my whole career that I've wanted to be part of something so bad that I was like, I want to have stakes in this company. I want to help make this, as you said, sexy and cool. I think it's really important to get people excited about buying something that you know is not fucking up the environment. We know it's almost impossible. And all the greenwashing that we see everywhere makes my skin crawl and everything that we read and all these mega brands like saying that they're green and like you know they have one conscious collection or whatever it is and it's just such bullshit and it drives me bonkers and I've always refused I've never ever ever done any activation with a brand to do with their eco line I've never agreed to do that I don't believe that they are I think you can't have one green line and the rest of your brand that's 95% not and why would I be the face of that but this is different this is something that really from the inside out is completely green and it's amazing. They're comfortable. So we're working on a capsule that's going to be coming out in September. And I'm so excited for it. You and Katie. Katie yeah, Lopez. me and Katie and the team at Stripe and Stare. And it's just been the most fun. And it's a lot of work, but it's something I truly believe in. If you bury the knickers, they compost in 180 days, which is just phenomenal. And when I told my friends, they didn't believe me. Like my friends who are like interested in sustainability and the environment, they were like, it's not possible, it doesn't exist. And I was like, well, go check. I think it's been really exciting for me to work on something that I really feel has a real legacy, you know, like that's something that I feel like very good about putting out into the world. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co and its select stores. This episode is also sponsored by Stripe and Stare, the world's comfiest sustainable lingerie, loungewear, and sleepwear. Stripe and Stare products are made from tensile modal, tree-based, cloud-soft, and biodegradable. Stripe and Stare is on a mission to revolutionize your underwear drawer and change the world one knicker at a time. To discover Stripe and Stare and the silky softness of tensile, shop on its website, stripeandstare.com with a 20% discount for Green Dream listeners. At checkout, enter this exclusive code, DREAM20. That's D-R-E-A-M-2-0. Stripe and Stare is also available at major retailers, including Selfridges and Shopbop. If you're enjoying this episode, check out my interview with supermodel and climate activist Amber Valletta. Find it and all Green Dream episodes wherever you get your podcasts or on the Dana Thomas Substack page on substack.com. 
home for the Green Dream newsletters, Sippy Daily Posts, and for a small subscription, a plethora of fab bonus material. Now back to our interview with green-minded style influencer, Camille Chalier, the sustainability editor for British Elle. Now you said you primarily wear vintage, but do you shop at all? Do you have a process for getting new? Do you peruse the green edits on e-tailing sites like Net-A-Porter and Matches Fashion? Do you have designers that you patronize who are like Stripe and Stare, where you say, right, let's have... I do have designers that I support that I know are green, like for example, Connor Ives or... To be honest, the way I tend to shop is that I buy primarily vintage. I feel like most of the things I own are secondhand. And that has been gradual, but now I'd say it's almost 95%. And where do you pick up your vintage? On Portobello Road, oh, on I Portobello, imagine. Portobello, like, but not only, like I go on Vestiaire Collective, I go on Depop. I'm also on Instagram a lot for work. And on Instagram now, there are all these amazing little individual sellers who have, because vintage has really taken off in a big, big way recently, all these amazing little dealers have popped up and they've got great things for very reasonable prices. And all you need to do is look. I always say to people, the thing about vintage is that it is going to take you a bit longer than buying something new. It's going to take you like, you're going to have to look for things. You're going to have to accept that there's going to be trial and error. If it doesn't work, you send it back or you sell it on. Yes, it's a little bit of a slower process, but once you've got the hang of it, it's actually like such a joy, really. My rules are like, never buy something the first time you see it. Always sleep on it. Do not give in to that impulse buy, which is just because you're in need of that dopamine hit when you're feeling a bit down or when you're like bored or whatever it is that we're doing when we're shopping online. And even if you're in a store, unless you're traveling on the other side of the world, even then, like I was in Japan like last month and I saw something I really liked and I knew I wasn't going to find it again somewhere else. And I said to Francois, let's sleep on it. I ended up getting it. But Francois, your husband. Yeah. Also my husband. I, it was a vintage Gucci bag. It's like a really beautiful. It was a good price. It was 300 pounds. It was beautiful, like pony hair with the zebra print. I loved it forever. And I knew I wanted like something like this for a long time. So it wasn't going to be something that I wasn't going to use. I said right. to him, oh, I don't really need it. And we went home and he said to me, he's like, you do really like that. I haven't put it down since. It's all I've worn for the last... And it was not expensive. I'm really happy that I have a souvenir from that trip because it was an amazing trip. The fact it came from that trip means something to me now, which I think is also really important to have like objects attached to memories because that's also what clothes are supposed to be. And if we're just clicking on websites, ordering things to our doorstep, you don't get that memory that comes with it, which I think is also part of what our things should be. Absolutely. We we need to infuse everything that we own and wear with life, with love, with stories. Yeah. You know, they tell stories, they tell our lives. Yeah. And they used to, but now that we burn through them in the average garment, as I wrote in Fashionopolis, is worn seven times before it's thrown away. Yeah. And, you know, 80 billion things a year. Yeah. We produce 100 billion, we buy 80 billion, and less than 10% is recycled or put back into circularity, meaning through vintage resale, through upcycling and recutting and remaking. Single digit numbers of percentage is how much is kept in the cycle yeah. and not sent to a landfill. And I just find that's so, so depressing. I mean, I love my clothes. I still have Tom Ford Gucci. And every time I trot it out, someone goes, God, that's a I'm great gonna outfit. I'm going to come and steal have, that from you. That is my favorite era of anything. I have a liar from the 80s. And every time I wear it, everyone's like, that's an amazing coat. What is that coat? And I'm like, it was also better. It was better. It was great. 
The cuts were better, the fabrics were better. These garments had more care and love poured into them than what we have now. What we have now is churned out just to like for them to make bigger margins. And it's something that really bothers me about luxury now is that it's not really luxury. It's kind of like expensive, ready to wear. It's expensive fast fashion. It's expensive fast fashion. It's like a t-shirt that's got like marketing attached to it, which makes it really expensive because Kendall Jenner is in the campaign. I think we all know what we can do to be trying harder, to be more mindful of what we're putting in our wardrobes. And people say you vote with your wallet. You know, when you're buying Mm -hmm. things, you are placing a vote and you're giving money to certain people. And that's why it's important to pick who you're giving that money to, because we all know it's going to have an impact. Absolutely. You know, for some women, the solution, especially for weddings, is renting. Because if you think about it, yeah. You can rent a bridal dress for, say, 300 instead of buying a new one for 3000 It's imbued yeah. with great energy because the person who wore it before you was also happy. And you get to, yeah. in the saying, something borrowed, something blue, you've got your borrowed, yeah, yeah, sure. but you've just upped your game in what you can wear because you're making your budget go so much more. I yeah. think that the bridal, went, our husbands are renting morning suits or tuxedos or whatever, why doesn't a bride rent? And that is a business that's apparently thriving and it's fantastic. And it keeps those dresses in circulation too. I wore my mother's dress. So that dress has been now worn two times. But that's kind of crazy that such a beautiful dress is sitting in a box for decades and decades. And then I told my daughter, she can have it. So I said, you can just take it to a tailor or a seamstress and cut it up and make something new out of it. Let's just not let it sit in a box for eternity. That's silly. Yeah. So I love the idea of renting and recycling for weddings. There's a designer on Instagram I follow who does that, who takes old wedding dresses, that vintage wedding dresses that brides buy, and she turns them into new dresses by hiking this up and cutting that off and changing the neckline. I love that. I think it's so beautiful. I mean, my wedding dress was upcycled. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, how did you do it? I was reading a profile of Harris Reed in the New York Times, and there was a picture of this dress, like lace, and it was pictured on this beautiful black model. It was more like a spaghetti strap, really simple column dress. Mm-hmm. And I DM'd him. We didn't know each other. The fashion designer, Harris Reed. The fashion designer, Harris. And I said to him, I've seen this picture of this dress. I have a feeling it's my wedding dress. Would you mind if I came and tried it on? Do you have it? And he was like, yeah, come in next week. Came in. I was double the size of the model and it couldn't fit my bum. We had to have it open. I was like, oh no, like, uh." and he was like, it's fine. We're just going to find something else and add a train to it so that we can give you a bit more fabric because I wasn't the size of the model. And three weeks before the wedding, they found the same fabric, the same lace, but obviously it hadn't been worked on by the atelier. So it didn't have all the beautiful little bits of embroidery, but because it was the back and we turned it into a train, it didn't matter. I was so proud to wear something that had been worn before and that had, I just felt like it was a positive message to be giving out to other brides around me that like, you can do this in a way that's not wasteful. Do you think that fashion and beauty, the businesses, the industries, can actually change and become greener? What would you like to see change in the fashion and beauty industries to make them more sustainable? I think I would like brands, and especially luxury brands, to reclaim ownership of their secondhand market. I think what's really important is that now brands just churn out product, and if it sells, it sells. If it doesn't, it either gets burned or it gets like thrown away, God knows where. Away doesn't exist. So it's in some landfill somewhere. In the desert of South America, in, on the yeah, beaches of Africa. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that is what one of our biggest problems is, is that like there's no ownership. There's no accountability. So like they're putting out all this stuff 
And it doesn't matter to them what happens after to it. And that to me is a problem. That's why I don't believe brands when they talk to me about their green policies, because I'm like, the only way for you to be greener is if you had a blockchain and actually were tracking what you were doing with your products, because your products have value. You're supposed to be making high-end products that not meant to be thrown away. They are meant to be like sold on. Why aren't you building systems where you can sell on these products? The big designers don't want to be part of the secondhand market because the margins are less high. Even though the secondhand market is growing three times faster than fast fashion and luxury fashion, and it is the future. What I'm excited about is that my generation and the one below me, I think are a lot greener than meaning millennials and gen gen z and then even below i think we are a generation that genuinely does want change and that we know that the world can't exist without big change so hopefully it's going to happen so how can listeners fold in some greener practices into their fashion lives buying vintage of course but what are some other simple tips the first thing I said, buy less, just buy, buy less. less, just buy less, buy better, buy less, buy better, like resist the urge when you're getting that impulse, try and stay away from fast fashion, regardless of what they're trying to say to you. It's the worst. And it's not just the worst because of the impact on the environment, but it's also because of the ethical cost of the people that are working in those places who are not getting paid fair wages, who are living in dangerous conditions. They shouldn't have to suffer for our fashion People are going to say, oh, but you know, like not everybody can afford an expensive dress. I'm like, that's not an argument. There are so many used clothes in the world that have a good price tag. I'm on Vistia. I'm seeing things And they're not the even used. A lot of them have never been no, worn. No, they've got tags on. They still have the tags on them. These people that are saying this, they're projecting their own guilt onto you. They know that you can find things for a decent price outside of the fast fashion giants. Well, thank you so much, Kemi Shaya, for joining us on The Green Dream. We hope you keep on your quest to making fashion a beautiful and eco-responsible experience. Thank you so much for having me. I hope this chat will inspire you to make some changes. Now, let's welcome back Hannah Elliott, the luxury car writer for Bloomberg Pursuits. She's going to tell us about her hilarious and at times harrowing test drive of McLaren's new hybrid, the Artura. The 2023 McLaren Artura is the first regular production hybrid from the 37-year-old British brand known for its Formula One racing team and portfolio of aggressive supercars meant for the track. Previously, the McLaren P1 and McLaren Speedtail used hybrid technology, though production of these multi-million dollar supercars was extremely limited. With the best cabin I've ever seen from McLaren and comfort-enhancing systems that make it nice to drive even on a daily basis, the long-awaited Artura is a capable coupe that will advance McLaren's standing in the high-end sports car segment. Better yet, the gaping air intakes, fender vents cut like armor, and arches over the rear just slightly less imposing than those adorning the Cathedral Notre Dame in Paris bring enough attitude to leave a message in the Artura's wake. Get out of my way. In McLaren's lineup, the Artura most closely resembles the McLaren GT, a beautifully proportioned touring coupe with big air vents on the side like an Audi R8, and none of the add-ons such as table-sized spoilers and carbon fiber doohickeys that make cars in this bracket look cheesy. It's the opposite of reserved. Dihedral doors open upward and scream, look at me, but it's not as outré as McLaren's Senna, which looks like a deranged insect robot with a spoiler. 
After driving it for a day in Los Angeles, I found the Artura also rivaling the GT in its ability to handle the annoyances and perils of daily use. Owners may be inclined to guard the Artura as a precious thing to be driven once a week or on a track, but it doesn't actually have to be cosseted. This car has so much to give. My user experience came during biblical levels of rain. This has been the wettest March in 28 years, according to the Los Angeles Almanac. I wondered whether I should reschedule the car, with streets flooding in the most inconvenient places in my Hollywood neighborhood. Broken branches, overturned garbage cans, and fallen rocks turned highways into obstacle courses. This was not the weather you want for testing a car with 671 horsepower and 531 pound-feet of torque designed for competence on the back straight at Thermal Club. Still, McLaren assured me I should see how it performs on wet surfaces. Along with that twin-turbo V6 engine and electric motor, the Artura comes with sticky Pirelli P0 corset tires and plenty of systems to steady nerves in unstable conditions, such as lane departure warning, road sign recognition, adaptive LED headlights, and myriad sensors. The Artura arrived with its full electric-only range of 19 miles and an unnerving warning from the man who delivered it. Just make sure the battery doesn't go to zero, because if it does, you can't reverse. I was too concerned with maneuvering the $233,000 machine out of my driveway before his warning sank in. A lift system that raises the front of the car 1.2 inches did help it exit. Later, I asked a McLaren spokesperson about putting the car into reverse. As it turns out, the Artura backs up by pulling power from the electric motor. The absence of a reverse gear helps spare weight on the one and a half ton car. I could get stranded with insufficient power to switch the gear into reverse, explains company spokesperson Laura Conrad. If that happened, I could rev the car in track mode for a minute or two and draw enough power back into the battery to reverse. Or in the unlikely event that I were near a charger, I could also plug it in. At that moment though, I was distracted fiddling with the shifter. McLaren is the quirkiest of the supercar makers when it comes to this interior getup. I remembered this as I grappled with it in my driveway under a slate sky oozing rain, my plans to hit the hills wavering in the balance of gloomy weather and the car's oddball design. After some poking around, I had it down. The shifter in the center console has drive, neutral, and reverse settings. There's no park as I found out later when I pulled into the valet line at the Sunset Tower. But you can pull a lever to the bottom left of the dashboard if you want to do it manually. The car will go into park automatically if you turn it off. All but the most devoted fans will find McLaren's ignition setup and placement of the side mirror and seat buttons perplexingly counterintuitive. Then there's the switch gear, for lack of a better word, that sits just above the steering wheel to the right within finger reach. It's perhaps the most glaring evidence that McLaren interiors are just plain weird. The switchgear operates such driving modes as comfort, sport, and track, and changes between paddle shifting and automatic shifting. I toggled through those settings when I wanted to override the car starting automatically into electric mode. Once sorted, I pulled out onto the US 101. The single massive wiper blade on the windshield scooped water as it came down in torrents. My mind turned back to what the delivery guy had said about reverse. I really can't drive these few electric miles down to zero? I couldn't risk any situation where I had to reverse, I thought. 
Imagine the embarrassment of being publicly stuck in a bright orange supercar. In any event, I was busy admiring the cabin. What a spacious, bright, well-appointed interior. I never thought I'd write those words about McLaren, a company that used to suffer from poor craftsmanship. McLaren still hasn't fixed every problem. It has already issued an Artura recall for loose nuts in the fuel system, which could potentially cause a fuel leak, and fuel leaks cause fires. That clearly isn't good, especially after McLaren already had to sell some of its heritage cars last year to fund new technology for the Artura. Nearly 170 cars are potentially affected by the recall, but McLaren is getting closer. The car I drove had premium black leather and micro suede seats with expert stitching and craftsmanship. I had a button-free steering wheel gently flattened at the bottom and almost no hints of the carbon fiber that clads other McLaren models. An 8-inch iPad-shaped screen mounted vertically in the center of the dashboard controlled things like Bluetooth and navigation. There were even cup holders in a sports car. Just don't get greedy and expect something so simple as a glove box. This is how these cars get a reputation of not being great daily drivers. You'll have to store your driver's license and registration elsewhere. I loved how the seats cradled my hips and shoulders. The windshield wasn't so slanted as to cut visibility as so often happens in Lamborghinis. The car was quiet inside, especially in EV mode, with a subtle drone from the motor and minimal road noise from the tires. During conventional driving, the engine offered a good-natured growl. Feeling confident, I pressed the accelerator as I wound my way up Route 2. Here, the rain fell in sheets, but the well-balanced Artura stuck to the road like an industrial magnet. It handled so precisely that I never felt vulnerable out in the rain and was just thrilled to be doing it. Credit McLaren's unique hydraulically-assisted steering system. I took full advantage of having the road to myself, danced in the storm on my own private highway. The brakes proved to be another highlight. They come with carbon ceramic discs and monoblock calipers that offer immense stopping power and stable grip on the wet surface. Braking before a horseshoe turn set me up for perfect acceleration through the curve and shooting like a bullet out of the other side. The car never wavered. I was practically singing along the highway as the Artura lifted me higher in nonstop rain until I came to a tight hairpin and stopped abruptly in front of a massive mud and boulders that had just given way. The road was completely blocked. Brakes are great, but now I was more concerned about the turning radius. What if I couldn't flip the car around and had to go in reverse to get out of there? 15 miles up Angeles Crest, my electric-only range read virtually zero, according to the gauge behind the steering wheel. That meant I would need to charge the electric motor. I said a prayer and threw it into reverse. Thankfully, the car gently rolled back. I guess there was enough juice in the battery to get me away from that mountain of mud. I turned around slowly, slowly, and headed down. With a zero to 60 mile per hour time of three seconds and a top speed of 205 miles per hour, the Artura will hustle when needed. I hastened down to alert the maintenance crews of the new mudslide 10 miles uphill. My good deed for the day was done. I'll admit, I loved the Artura more later that night when I took it out again to drive down Sunset Boulevard to meet some folks for dinner. So few supercars are enjoyable in that pedestrian environment, what with their stiff suspensions, delicate wheels, low bodies, poor visibility, and noisy, roaring engines that bark and belch even at 20 miles per hour. Driving this one felt like a treat. 
while a Lamborghini Aventador on a pockmarked street at night in the rain is loud and will leave you driving half blind, the Artura felt supple over uneven roads and quiet inside, even though the nearly useless EV mode was long gone. The Artura gets 17 miles per gallon in the city and 21 on the highway in gas-powered driving. The cabin's generous headroom even accommodated my black straw hat. I rolled into the dining room happy and energized, high off the drive-in, unbothered by the rain. The Artura had proved itself a reliable supercar in all conditions. If only my dinner companions had delivered the same joy. And that wraps up our third season of The Green Dream. Thank you so much for your support. We'll be back in September with a slew of fabulous guests from business, politics, and the arts to talk about how we can all live a greener life. Until then, you can keep up with what's happening on the climate front by subscribing to the Green Dream newsletter on the Dana Thomas page of Substack.com. Have a wonderful summer. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, and its select stores. This episode is also sponsored by Stripe and Stare, the world's comfiest sustainable lingerie, loungewear, and sleepwear. Stripe and Stare products are made from tensile modal, tree-based cloud-soft and biodegradable. Stripe and Stare is on a mission to revolutionize your underwear drawer and change the world one knicker at a time. To discover Stripe and Stare and the silky softness of tensile, shop on its website, stripeandstare.com with a 20% discount for Green Dream listeners. At checkout, enter this exclusive code, DREAM20. That's D-R-E-A-M-2-0. Stripe and Stare is also available at major retailers, including Selfridges and Shopbop. This episode of The Green Dream was sponsored by the sustainable fashion brand, Another Tomorrow. Written by Dana Thomas, from Talkbox Productions with executive producer Tavia Gilbert, with mix and master by Kayla Elrod, music performed by Eric Brace of Red Beat Records in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Dana Thomas, the European Sustainability Editor for British Vogue. You can read my monthly column, also called The Green Dream, in the magazine or online at vogue.co.uk. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, where my handle for both is Dana Thomas Paris. Thank you for listening.